O God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Um, I should also say that our lectionary readings were um, about the transfiguration. So if we were sticking with the lectionary for the gospel reading, we'd be talking about the transfiguration of Jesus being up on this mountain with his beloved disciple John and, and Peter and James, and then he is talking with Elijah and Moses. And so this is an interesting thing, and, and if, if, you're, if that's familiar to you at all, the other passages we read would make more sense in that context. But we go ahead and read the scripture, whether we're reading that, whether, whether we're sticking with the rest of the lectionary or not, and we're walking through Luke, so this is where we are. Um, so we're not necessarily tying these things to the transfiguration. We're in the last week of Jesus' life, and we're still in the upper room where he... Um, shared the Passover meal with his friends. And um, we're in the middle of that meal, actually, where this passage picks up. Have you ever had like a moment ruined? Say, you're telling a story with great gravitas. And you're driving, you get your people with you, you're telling a story... But before you can get to the end, someone cracks a joke. And the, gra- the gravity of the situation, the, the oomph of where you were going with your story, it's all lost. Because somebody's cracked a joke, now you've lost the crowd, and everybody's just goofing off. It's this kind of thing that's happening in this, in this story. Things get derailed. The moment's ruined. Last week we began this passage of Jesus sharing this uh, this this. Passover meal, which he longed to share, he said, with his disciples. And um, in the midst of that meal, which this is that traditional meal that uh, it's been happening only for at this time for about 2,000 years at that point. And so there's a tradition, there's a way it goes. Everybody, everybody grew up as Jewish people. You knew the way it went because this was not your first rodeo. It's not, it's not like some of us entering into a liturgical church and being confused because everything has an order and it kind of repeats itself. This is what they did, and they did this forever. So if you, if you were alive and you grew up at all, you were familiar with the Passover meal. And in the midst of that Passover meal, which was so familiar to you, Jesus changes things up and does something very weird in the midst of the meal. While the candles are burning low at the end of the meal, Jesus takes that third cup, the cup of redemption, and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This moment is a key high moment in salvation history. So salvation history, let's say from Genesis 3.15 up to this point, this is like the high point. Because Jesus is saying that what is happening here in this meal, and, it, and, and, it, and to, to hear that, and I'll not repeat last week uh, entirely, but it would have just been weird if you knew the way this went, and he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it, and he said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. And we hear this every week, we're familiar with communion. 
But you got to get unfamiliar in this context because this is not what they said. This is not how the Passover meal went. In the previous generation, the person leading through wouldn't say that. Nobody has ever said these words. It was very weird. And then how do you make sense of it about this eating of his body, drinking of his blood? But he, in giving of this blood, he's saying this prophecy from hundreds of years prior to me that Jeremiah talked about, and we just heard about how prophecies came about. They weren't from the will of man, but the will of God. God had promised his people to make a new and better covenant through um, the coming Savior. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying, in this meal, I am he. This prophecy, which you have heard about, about this new and better covenant, is being fulfilled in me, in my blood. So the writer of uh, Hebrews says that this is a better covenant, this new covenant is a better covenant than the old covenant, because uh, in the old covenant, there were human priests who had to make sacrifices for the sins of man, and they would slaughter animals, and it's happened year after year after year after year after year. Priests would die, they'd get a new priest, priests would, and they had lots of priests, but pre- there was a constant rotation, they would die, but sacrifices continued and continued and continued. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, this covenant is a better covenant because it has a better priest. It has a priest who will never die. It has a priest who does this action once. The priest also is the same as the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is a better sacrifice. The blood is a better blood. And it will propitiate the wrath of God. And so this is one and done. Unlike the continual repetition from the Old Covenant. So, he is transforming this meaning of this meal, which had had a long-standing understanding of what, of, of what was going on here, and he transforms this. And from what follows the meal, though, it appears that the disciples didn't really get the significance of his teaching. But we'll know as... We've read the book, and as time passed, this became the central piece of their meeting. So it became very significant to them at a later time. So we're, we're looking at their story, and we're seeing them operate in the natural without the benefit of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is important for us to see, that in our natural ability, we see the world around us, with us at the center. So in the natural, we see the world around us with us at the center. But Jesus turns our eyes off ourselves and enables us and enables us to live for others first. This I think this is going to be illustrated to us as we walk through this passage. So we naturally see the world around us uh, with us at the center, but Jesus turns our eyes off ourselves and enables us to live for others first. So the first thing we're going to see is a me, I, I've got a thinking of a me-centered vision. So a me-centered vision leads to betrayal. It's the first thing we're going to see. So look with me, if you will, in verse 21. And it says, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. 
But woe to to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another with which of them it could be who was going to do this. So now, helpful for us to understand that we have separated this account of the Last Supper or this Passover meal into two parts. We ended the first part in verse 20, and then we're picking up the second part in verse 21. But this didn't happen a week apart. This wasn't a pause. This is one thing right after the next. It's all together. And um, this dinner's winding down. He said those words, and we know that Jesus, because we've read the book, we know that, I mean, sorry, Judas, we know that it was Judas who was the one who betrayed him. Sometimes we hear of people who feel sorry for Judas and how he fell to the temptation of Satan. But Jesus says, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. And remember last week, we talked about Jesus being in complete control of how things were to go as this as this whole event progressed and how he was in control of all of these uh, details. Well, we see that still to be the case in this episode right now. So this is not by accident, it's not by chance that Judas was the one who betrayed him. Judas's view of the world was me-centered. The devil tempted Judas by appealing to what was uh, what moved his heart. The, the, the devil knew the heartbeat of Judas and tempted him there where he was uh, vulnerable. The evil one knows our weak spots and he tempts us. Where are your weak spots? Where do you find you are susceptible to being tempted by the evil one, to stray. John seventeen twelve. this is uh, continuing from this time forward. Jesus enters into a time of prayer, and he's, uh, you know, we're, so we're in the last week of his life, we're just really, you could count them by hours from being crucified. But before, he, before that, before all the things come to pass, he's in the garden and praying, And he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I mean, he kept all the disciples. He says, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, Jesus is in control of all of these things. This is later than, so he's just dismissed uh, Judas, and later... Only a little bit later is he praying to the Father saying that I have lost none that you've given me except the son of destruction or the son of perdition. Some some translations will say perdition. Or same as the son of hell. This is, this is not a good thing. You don't want to be the son of perdition. You don't want to be a son of destruction. But interestingly, we are set free because Judas betrayed Christ. And if you have empathy for Judas and I don't I'm not I'm not bashing you for that. That's okay. But the reality is everything's bigger than Judas. It's bigger than his story, but he's a part of the story, very significant, and it's in his betrayal that we are set free. 
The next thing we're going to see is a a me-centered vision leads to dissension. Verse 24 says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader... As one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Now he says this as he's reclined at the table with them. So they've just shared this very intimate meal. Based on thousands of years of tradition. Where Jesus introduces the new covenant. Highest point in, uh, uh, at this point, it's the highest point in salvation history. And then he announces abruptly that one will betray him. Then the disciples began to wonder who it is that's going to betray him, and he sends Judas out to get on his way. John explains that in a little more detail, and there's a little more length to it, but essentially, that's you know, he, he, he sends him out, calls him out of the crowd and says, what you do, what you must do, do quickly. But the disciples didn't even seem to have time to miss Judas, that he was not there, or be shocked that he was going to betray Jesus. And then they're jockeying for position. And are they, are they jockeying for position so that they can be close to the Lord in his new kingdom? Are they understanding that much? Are they seeing that Judas is out Maybe we can get into a different position here. The disciples were simply sowing dissension and discord uh, because they needed ranking and they needed affirmation. They needed validation. Their me-centered vision made them concerned about themselves and figuring out how to get ahead even at the expense of others. They They really didn't care who they would step on so long as they got to be the greatest. They, they're jockeying for position here. How many times have we heard of a coworker or a, a peer in our industry or whatever, even a family member, receive accolades for some sort of accomplishment and then we think, well, what about me? What about me? People, have you forgotten about me? And maybe in your mind you're listing off. Why you, why you are more deserving of those accolades than the uh, person who's receiving them. You're justifying yourself in the midst of this. You're, you're hurt and bothered because you, like the disciples, need validation. You need affirmation from man, not from God. You need it from man. We're forgetting that we've been validated, that we've been affirmed. In the gospel. Jesus gives them an illustration at this point to help them understand what leadership as a believer is to look like. What a follower of Jesus, what leadership in the kingdom is to look like. And it's upside down compared to that of the world. The kings of the Gentiles were used to being served. Jesus says to be great in the kingdom, one must serve others. So... How has Jesus transformed your 
desire to be served into a willingness to live and serve others. And again, we're, so we're not, we're not, we're not comparing to Mary or Bob on the other side of the church. How are you different because of the work of Jesus in your soul? Where do you see yourself in the category of a servant where you wouldn't normally have been prior to Jesus? Are you seeing these things? Jesus, here, is the Lord of the table. Yet, He is the host. And, and, and he's, he's the host who gets up from the table. John's Gospel talks about this as the same meal. It's the same night. We're not covering it here. John's Gospel covers it. This is the Lord of the table. The host gets up, takes off his outer garment, and washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. How are you following in Jesus' footprints and your willingness? This is, all, this is that whole self-denial thing. You know, why is it we, what, what, what is it that keeps us from serving others? What is it that keeps us from living for others? It's our me-centeredness. It's our me-centered vision. I like my comfort. I like my riches. So I like my job that keeps me occupied. But I don't have time for anybody but me. I like this. I like that. I like me. I like me. That's what this is getting to. Do you like me? Do you like yourself so much that you're not willing to die to yourself, to lay down your life, and serve others? I find these to be hard messages. These these people that can preach week in, week out, only feel-good messages, I don't know where they get them. These don't make me feel good. This conjures up my weakness, my self-centeredness, my appeal for comfort. I may have to get out of my lazy boy and actually do something to serve others. I find this challenging. The next thing we see is a me-centered vision leads to spiritual failure. This almost seems like it's like out of nowhere, but it's in the midst of this meal. And, and things have just gone from bad to worse. Where Jesus is sharing this great meal with him, he wants to impart this information. They don't seem to get it. And then things just keep getting worse. So in 31, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Sounds like Job. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So Peter, I love Peter, Peter vehemently defends his loyalty to the master. Can you relate to him? 
He is determined that come what may, he will stand. He's ready to go to jail. He says he's ready for death. He will follow Jesus to the bitter end or until a young girl in the courtyard recognizes him and then he denies that he knows Jesus. Doesn't want to be associated. In the safety of the upper room, this is, this is easy to say. Yes, I will follow you. But this is only hours later. And the young girl in the court, courtyard is, weren't, weren't you, I know you, weren't you with him? I don't know him. I never knew him. The preservation of our own life is taking place. The preservation of our own reputation takes precedence over laying it down for Jesus. Now we know that Peter came to stand. We read his epistle to the church. That he came to stand for Christ and he suffered greatly for it. But here he failed because his confidence was in himself and his own ability. I can relate to this. Perhaps you can as well. Perhaps you can relate to having confidence enough in yourself that you're not really humbly following the Lord. You dismiss what it might be to be tested, tempted, or even doubting because we have pride in us that rises up and we have great confidence in ourselves. But his lack of humility led him to spiritual failure. So how humble are you? Is your confidence in the strength of your faith? Meaning, really, in yourself? Or is your confidence in what Jesus accomplished through the cross and resurrection on your behalf? Do you believe Jesus or do you believe yourself? What is it we're really trusting in? You see, and it's in these times of temptation, in these times of purification, in this, in the midst of our sufferings, it reveals what our hearts really long for. We can give lip service to lots of things. We can claim loyalties to lots of things. But where do we invest our time, our monies, our energies, our time, our talents. Our self-reliance to protect our world as we see it will lead us to spiritual failure. We must be humble. Next thing we see is a man-centered vision leads to dullness to the Lord's desires. I find this interesting. Verse 35 says, And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he has numbered, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has to, has its fulfillment. 
And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. Now, he didn't say it is enough because he meant that the two swords are enough. That's, that fills, that, which in my, just in the way I'm reading that, seems like, well, that's enough. You're like, how could two swords be enough, like, to hold off the Roman soldiers? That doesn't make sense. Well, no, he, when he says that's enough, it's like, okay, boys, I've had it enough. This is enough. Enough of that silly talk. Enough of this foolishness. Knock it off. That's what my dad would have said. Knock it off. This, this whole scene from the beginning, verse 21, is a scene of divine disappointments in the disciples. Their lack of understanding or attentiveness to the fuller meaning of Jesus' message created a dullness which in turn meant that they couldn't catch what the Lord intended for them. Jesus is warning them here in this passage that this won't be like it was before when he sent them out. Luke records two other times that Jesus sent disciples out two by two where they would be welcomed on the road and they would find a place to stay and the towns that they entered would like know them and welcome them. But now Jesus says, Scripture must be fulfilled in me. When he says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So in this, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah and applying this to himself. He's saying, what the scripture said about me must be fulfilled. This is how he will be treated. Now with his betrayer on the move, which he sent Judas out, it's only a matter of time until his trials, his floggings, his crucifixion take place. Jesus wanted his disciples to ponder what he was telling them about how the times had changed for him and them. Their lives would also be in jeopardy. Yes, his was, but yours will be as well. However, with their dullness, which was so common before the giving of the Holy Spirit, they focused on the word sword without understanding what it really meant for them. Now, it really didn't appear that Jesus was actually intending them to arm themselves as the scene in the garden a short time after this would show us because one of the disciples picks up the sword and he draws the sword cuts off a, uh, a piece of the ear of uh, a servant of the high priest and Jesus says no more of this if we are not willing to invest our, our time with the Lord in word, in his word, and in prayer, and in meditation, and in time with God's people, and serving others, we will grow dull to what the Lord has in store for us. Have you, have you ever heard people say, well, my God would not, and then whatever, fill in the blank. I got to have a conversation yesterday, and this came up. My God wouldn't do that. I find I find these things interesting, and if if you're not in those conversations, you need to be. They're just fun because it helps us understand what these people think about God. Many times when we hear "My God would not," fill in the blank. You're like, okay, what you're describing is not the biblical God. It's not the God who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures to us. You're talking about yes. Your God. It's the God you have created. 
It's a God of your own making. Now, I realize that we there are lots of different interpretations of different scriptures and all that stuff. I get that. But there are, on these basics, there should be some commonality. We have the same Holy Spirit. There are things that are stressed in the scriptures. There are things that are primary in the scriptures. There are things that are secondary in the scriptures. Sometimes we hold on to our own view of God, of who we think He is, or what He thinks, what we think He desires, without humbling ourselves to His guidance, which He's given us in His scriptures. Where has your dullness kept you from experience restoration, peace, and rest that the Lord has in store for you? Jesus came to this upper room with the great expectation of sharing this meal with his friends. Scripture says so. He knew what lie ahead. But then came Judas' betrayal, the disciples' dissension, Peter's denial, and their dullness. And Jesus finally utters enough from a broken heart. Jesus, being numbered with the transgressors, not only was he counted among the thieves, and he had committed no crime, but it's in the midst of that that he atoned for our sin where he's quoting out of Isaiah, is out of Isaiah 53, earlier in that same chapter, Isaiah 53, verse 4 through 6, says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The beautiful piece of this is Jesus atones for our sin. I think in each one of those stories or separation of that same story in those segments, the faults we see in those disciples we see in ourselves. I'm, I'm trusting I'm not the only one. And so as the sin has then exposed our, as the scriptures have, has, has exposed our sin, Then we run to the cross because Jesus has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. We, we, we don't, we don't come saying, I'm confident in me. Yes, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But we come clinging to Him, our only hope for salvation, so that as He covers our sin, then we are robed in the righteousness of Christ. And with his wounds, we are healed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let us pray.